is good to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Thomas, and I get to be on staff here at Calvary, and it's my joy to be able to open up God's Word with you today and investigate what God has to say to us. And today we start a new series in the book of Exodus, and I am so excited to be starting this series that's going to take us through fall up into Christmas. And I want to start this series by asking you this question. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you just felt stuck? You felt stuck in the sense of you look behind you in the road you came in on and you said, I can't leave that road. That, that road cannot lead me out of this place. And you look ahead of you and you think, there's no way that I can move forward. I don't even know where to go. And despite your best energies or your efforts, you haven't been able to get you, yourself unstuck. And you just, there's a sense of like frustration and despondency that sometimes comes in when you have this sense of feeling stuck because you look behind you and there's just kind of like past failures and you look ahead of you and there's like there's hopelessness. This is a heavy feeling. This is how Colorado State football fans feel when it's CU Buff Showdown Week. It's just like, man, can we just win one? Is it, even ho is it hopeless to even go and play this game against the mighty Buffaloes? Some CSU fans are going to email me on Monday or something like that. No, I'm just joking. But in a real sense of being stuck. In the real sense of knowing you can't go back and you don't know how to go forward. I have three brothers and one sister. One of my brothers, Stephen, is a great climber and mountaineer. A few years ago, Stephen decided that he and a buddy of his were going to climb Long's Peak. They weren't going to hike Long's Peak. They were going to climb it. And their plan was to leave early in the morning, climb it, and come back down and probably be back down by late afternoon or early evening. And so Stephen told his wife, Monica, that he sh they should expect a phone call late afternoon, early evening, after they've completed the climb. And Stephen and his friend began to climb early in a late summer day. And as they climbed, they were having a great time, but unknown to them, unpredicted by the weathermen, was an early winter storm that was brewing behind longs, and they couldn't see it. And they continued to climb up longs, passing halfway, getting closer to the top, when this winter storm rolled in and made them stop. It was a moment that Stephen says, I, I knew for certain that we were way too far up and the storm was too serious to climb back down. And the storm had removed visibility of where we were going and it was too dangerous to move forward, and we became stuck. It was impossible for us to retreat our steps, and it was impossible for us to move forward. And so with the limited equipment, we settled in for the night. Now, that is his experience on the side of the mountain. And then late afternoon and early come and go, and his wife Monica hasn't received a phone call yet. And she begins to think, did they make it? Is he injured? Is he okay? Maybe, maybe his phone died. I don't know. So she calls the ranger station and says, hi, my husband's name is Stephen Milburn. And I just want to check to see if he signed in this morning, if he actually accomplished the, started the climb. And did he sign out by any chance? And the ranger looks at the book and says, yep, I see your husband's name. He has signed in with his friend. They haven't signed out. She says, well, this is the route they were planning on taking. And the ranger said, we can see that route from over here. And so he pulled out his binoculars and got on the glass and started looking on the route trying to find Stephen. 
And there he spotted Stephen, having set up on the side of the mountain in a bivy, which is a tent sleeping bag. And there they are hunkered down for the evening. And he said, it's too late in the day for us to go up and do anything. We will have to see what morning brings. And so can you imagine the evening, Stephen and his friend, feeling like, maybe, maybe, do I have my last conversation with my spouse? Was this my last opportunity to say I love you? Is this, is this the end? Because there's nothing we can do. We have to see if we can survive a winter storm with no winter gear for the night. They're totally stuck. And the same conversation goes on in Monica's head. What will morning bring? Is it possible for a new day? For there to be hope and Stephen to be able to move out of this and, and come home? These are the questions that she's thinking. Now those are the questions that we often ask when we get stuck. And there's a variety of ways that we've gotten stuck in life. There are decisions that we've made that have resulted in serious consequences, shattering past, shattering relationships around us. And the hope of changing the past is gone and you look at the future and think, I don't even know how to repair this mess that I find myself in. We've made choices with behaviors that have developed into habits, that have developed into appetites, and these appetites have enslaved us, have kept us in bondage. And despite our best efforts, man, I know you want to break free. I know you want to stop. But you're stuck. And usually at this point is when we start saying to ourselves, God, if you're real, I mean, if you're real, and you answer prayer, I need you to give me one more chance. I need one more day. and I'll, I'll do better next time. Give me a, a third chance, 150th chance. I want to be set free from this place of bondage. And I want to move into a new day. Lord, would you hear my prayer? And we begin to pray. And the question is, do you know the God who hears your prayers? Do you know how he loves to respond? Do you know him? That's the question of Exodus. The reason we're going to Exodus is because we want to see who is the God that brings people from a place of bondage to a place of freedom. Who is this God that we can know, that would love to meet us in the middle of wherever we are, and for us to turn to him and for, us, for him to lead us out according to his good plan. And we're going to look at Exodus to do this. Now, some of you are going, why would you go to the Old Testament? I mean, Exodus is such an old book. I mean, we're Christians, and we're in the 21st century. I mean, just preach Jesus. I mean, teach us how to get unstuck and who God is by talking about Jesus in the New Testament. Why would you bother with the Old Testament? Just give us Jesus. And to be honest with you, one of the reasons that we have a very elementary view of Jesus a very narrow, shallow view of who Jesus is, is because we don't know our Old Testament. We don't know Exodus. Exodus is the framework and the foundation in which Jesus the Messiah, the promised rescuer of the world, steps into. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking for. Jesus is what was Old Testament pointing towards. Remember, Christianity is not something new on the scene, not a new idea or a new religion. It's the fulfillment of what God has been doing in his story of redemptive history. And so not to know Exodus 
is to totally miss out on who is Jesus. Jesus is all over throughout Exodus. If you haven't seen him there, I can't wait to show you. The the Exodus is quoted by the psalmists and the prophets more than 120 times. Tremper Truman, or sorry, yeah, Tremper Truman III, who's an Old Testament scholar, points out that Exodus is the high point of salvific history in the Old Testament. It's been said that the Jewish people would look to the Exodus to know the God of salvation as we look to the cross. This is how important it is to their whole identity. In Exodus, the Hebrew people become a nation. In Exodus, the Hebrew people get an identity. It's in Exodus that they get their feasts of Passover and tabernacles. It's in Exodus that establishes this wilderness and wandering that Jesus steps into. And so when you come to the New Testament, we see Jesus walking in the wilderness and fulfilling the Exodus. We see this bizarre scene called the transfiguration in which Jesus is meeting with Moses and Elijah, something that would have to occur before the Messiah was revealed. And that Moses, that's Exodus, is speaking to Jesus. And this is Luke chapter 9. And Luke records for us that Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus about his departure that he was soon to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that word departure is literally Exodus. Moses is speaking to Jesus about the ultimate Exodus from sin and death that he was soon to accomplish in Jerusalem. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he was having a Passover meal. What is Jesus doing with a Passover meal and pointing the whole Passover, it's the Exodus story, to himself? To know Exodus is to know Christ. And that's why we're going there. Now others will say, okay, Exodus, come on, like, pick a different book of the Bible. I mean, that, those have familiar characters. I know the story of Moses. I know the story of Aaron. Come on, like, pick a story that we don't know so well. Well, here's the thing. If you think it's the story of Moses and Aaron, you're missing out on Exodus. See, it's great to know some of the characters, like Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh, Jethro, Zipporah, Pua. That's great that you know them. But Exodus is not their story. Exodus is God's story. See, all of those characters are supporting cast members of God's story. History is his story. God's story of redemption. And he's moving his story, his plan, through these characters. And so I want you to know, what is God's story? How does he reveal himself that you would know him? Who is God in the midst of your life being stuck? And what is our response to him that we might find freedom and promise from a place of bondage? And to do that, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 1 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, grab Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book in the Bible. So just open it up. You're going to see Genesis and then Exodus. And if you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you. Not all the passages are going to be on the screen for the series. This is my opening disclaimer whenever we start a series. Grab a Bible, own a Bible. If you don't have one, take the one in front of you. You can have it. You can go buy a Bible. If you want to know which version I use, I use the English Standard Version. Why, you ask? Because this is the language that Jesus spoke when he was around. And I thought, use the English Standard Version. That's fine. You guys are like, Jesus, English. I'm just kidding. That's a translation joke. But any Bible is going to be great. Grab an NIV, New American Standard. But if you need to buy a Bible, grab an ESV. You'll follow along with me. 
So here we go. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read the first 14 verses and set the scene of this book. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Neptali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. That's how the book of Exodus starts. Now, it, it's a continuation of the story. It actually begins with an end. The Genesis concludes, and then Exodus opens, talking about the family of God being here in Exodus. And what we're going to see in the first 14 verses, the first chapter, is that God's people, God's plan, and God's promises are all here in Exodus, but they're supposed to be in Canaan. What's God going to do with his people and his plan and his promises? They're in bondage in Egypt. And there's a profound, provocative statement, verse 8, that would have pricked the early hearers' ears and tuned them in to there's a massive problem going on. And that's verse 8. There rose a king in Egypt that did not know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph, didn't know his plan, didn't know his people, didn't know the promises that were given to this family. He did not know Joseph. And out of fear of a people that had immigrated into Egypt, he responds with slavery. Now, can you imagine that? Living in a day that people don't know Joseph. Can you imagine? They don't know who Joseph is. I mean, it's Joseph. And to be honest, there's probably a lot of us in the room that are like, I'm going to need a refresher. I'm not sure who Joseph is. Like, I read that line, and I, and I didn't... I didn't see the implications of a king who does not know Joseph. You have to remind us of who Joseph is because that's the scene that's set. And so what we're going to do, give me 12 minutes, and we're going to go on a Bible discovery tour. Fun, and I'll be your tour guide. So we're going to go through the entire book of Genesis looking for God's people, his plan, and his promise, and to see it show up here in Exodus. Who's excited? All right, all right, all right. That's, that's better than second hour, second hour. They're, they're weak, weak. I've saved the best for you guys. All right, 
Give me 12 minutes, maybe 15, and then we'll bring relevance. If you get lost, hang in there. We will land the plane back in Exodus shortly. So Genesis chapter 1, go to the very first book of the Bible. We're looking for God's plan, his people, and his promise. Chapter 1, verse 1 starts out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be. And God created, and everything that was created has been created through him, specifically his son, Jesus Christ. And every, the world was created in heavens and on earth, and he created humanity, men and women. And he gives men and women, Adam and Eve, this creation mandate, a plan of how they are to live. Verse 28, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the plan. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that plan, in perfect harmony with God, lasts a couple chapters. And in chapter three, we see our great, 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 great parents do exactly what we would have done. All of a sudden, God's adversary comes in and makes us believe that God's against us. He's not for us. If he really loved you, he'd do these things. And so they doubt that God is good. They doubt that they should follow God and obey God and and believe in God, and so they actually do the very thing that God told them not to do, and sin and death enter the world. And the ripple effect is massive. Every area of your life has been bent by sin and death. And the question is, is the God who created gonna help repair, or is he just wipe us off the face of the earth and say, we'll start over, we'll do something else. But no, he, he responds. And he begins to reveal his eternal plan of salvation. And it happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he tells Eve that through her offspring, through the seed of her offspring, is going to come a rescuer, and this rescuer is going to crush God's adversary and defeat him of sin and death forever. Now, as you can imagine, sin and death enter the world in all of the ways it could wreak havoc. It's wrecking havoc. Every the ways that we hurt each other, kill each other, are afraid of each other, divide ourselves up, is happening in the early part of Genesis. And that's where the story of Noah comes in, where God grieves the wickedness of men. He says, we've got to do something. But I'm not done with them. I'm not finished with them. We're going to continue to move my plan forward. And so he calls a family of Noah. He says, Noah, you will be a new beginning. And here, after Noah's landed, after the flood, Chapter 9, flip over chapter 9, verse 1. These are the words that God spoke to Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The creation mandate before the fall is now carried into a broken world with the family of Noah. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Through Noah's offspring. And then God zeroes in on this plan from just the offspring of Eve to the family of a man named Abram and a gal named Sarai. Abraham's not yet known as Abraham. He's not a God-fearer. He doesn't know who God is. And so if you flip to chapter 12, here's God moving his plan forward. And in 12, he calls a man named Abram. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred. And your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that 
you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and and all the families of the earth shall be blessed by you. I'm calling a family out of the offspring of Eve and Noah to now put my plan and say, through you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you like no one's business. But you're not supposed to be a container of God's blessing, but a conduit of it. That through you, Abram, there's going to be nations and everyone on the world is going to be blessed through this family. I'm putting my plan inside of a family unit. And so he calls a people inside this family. And he gives them a promise. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I give you this land. I'm giving you a promise of a land for you to multiply and be fruitful in, to build up in, that I will bless you there and you will bless the nations from there. All right, flip over to Genesis 15. He says, but between you being born as a nation and filling this promised land, there's going to come a season. Verse 13. So you know it's not an accident. It's not as though God lost control or lost note of where you're at, Abram. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. That's speaking of Egypt. Flip over to 17. We'll start in verse 5. This is the transformation where God makes a covenant with this man named Abram. He says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the covenant he makes. So now we have set in a family God's plan. You have set in God's family his people, the offspring of Abraham, and you have his promise that there is a land that you will occupy and that I will bless, that the world through you, Abraham, will be blessed be blessed to be a blessing. Now, it doesn't stop with Abraham. Now, God speaks that to his son. Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac, and they continue this plan, the people, and the covenant, this promise through his son, Isaac. Flip over to Genesis 26. We're moving a little faster now. You guys still with me? All right, half the room. The other half, relevance. We're like seven minutes away now. We're coming. We have to know is we have a plan, we have a people, we have a promise, fruitful and multiply from the foundations of the earth. Verse 4 in 26, speaking to Isaac, Abraham's son, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Flip over to Genesis 35. So that's Isaac. Isaac has a son. His name is Jacob. Jacob is actually Joseph's father. Here, God speaks to Jacob. And watch the name change. This is Genesis 35, verse 10. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob no longer. Shall be your name called Jacob. But Israel shall be your name. 
So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. There it is again. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph, Joseph was hated by his brothers because they were jealous of him. And his brothers took him and sold him to slave traders who brought him to the land of Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph experienced what it was to be stuck. And he prayed the prayer that maybe you've prayed. Lord, have you forgotten about me? Do you see me here? And what Joseph's learned in Egypt is that God is faithful, good, and true. And the end of his story, he's able to say to his brothers, you intended this for harm. God has intended this for good. And through the story of Joseph, he rose through the ranks until he became the second highest person in command of all of Egypt. And the reason they loved Joseph was because Joseph had heard from God about something that was coming, a, a, a worldwide, a known worldwide famine. And he set up Egypt not only to survive the famine, but to resource all the nations that would come to them for resources. And so in the days of the famine, all the nations came to Egypt, including Joseph's family. And there Jacob and his brothers come in. And there's this beautiful story of how Joseph restores relationships with his brothers, loves his brothers, gives compassion and mercy to his brothers, and brings them in. And they settle into a land called Goshen. And there they're fruitful and they multiply. And here in the end of chapter 49, getting close to the end of Genesis, Jacob calls his 12 sons in. And he blesses each one of his sons according to a special blessing. And at the end of 49, it says this. Look over to Genesis 49 verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So now you have 12 sons in a family that God has made 12 tribes of a nation called Israel. And one of those sons is Joseph. And Joseph is beloved in Egypt. Chapter 49 ends and 50 begins with the death of Jacob, Joseph's dad. And Joseph grieves the loss of his father. And then we pick up in this final chapter, chapter 50, verse 4. It says, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I'll return. So this is the request of Pharaoh. Joseph says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, if, if I have any value with you, if I matter to you, would you let me go and grieve the loss of my father? It's going to take some time, days or weeks, because we're going to bury him in his tomb in Canaan. But, but I know that I'm the second in command. I will come back. I won't leave forever. But if, if I have found favor in your eyes, would you let me go that I might grieve with my family? That's the question. Look at the response, verse 6. And Pharaoh answered, go up 
and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as Joseph's family. Pharaoh, if I have found favor with you, would you let me go grieve the loss of my father? It's going to take some time. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, we love you. And we're going with you. We're going with you. Your grief is our grief. That's how much we love you. That's how much we care about you. Like you are Egypt. You're with us. You're one of us. We're going with you. And so they shut down the country of Egypt that its leadership might go and grieve with Joseph. That's how important Joseph is to Egypt. It makes, makes me think of last year when Billy Graham died. In March of 2018, they held a service for Billy Graham. And the President of the United States, the Vice President, Senators and congressmen, famed Hollywood celebrities, and the like are all in attendance. Why? Because of who he's meant to our country. That you would send the president and its leadership to grieve its loss. But they only did it for a couple hours. And they didn't send everybody. Who is this Joseph that Egypt goes and grieves with him? See, that's the scene that Genesis ends with. Twelve tribes, God's people with a plan and promise. Beloved in Egypt, called to be fruitful and multiply. And then when you turn the page to Exodus, it begins with end. And the names to remind you are these. And they were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they increased. But there arose a king. There arose a king that did not know Joseph. And because he didn't know Joseph, this king did not know God's plan, did not know God's people, did not know God's promise, and therefore did not know God. And he stood in the very way of God's plan, people, and promise. Let me show you this in the first chapter. Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. God's promise is that you're going to go to another land. And this king says, you ain't going nowhere. You're not leaving this land. You belong to this land. We'll enslave you in this land. I defy God's promise to you. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. No, no, you're not servants of God. No, you're slaves of Egypt. And they put heavy taskmasters over them. You belong to us. You're our people. You're our slave force. And they give them the hardest tasks. Working in the canals, working through mud, working in agriculture all day and making bricks. And the heat would come down and bake this clay on their skin. And the, the world was crushing them. And this last piece in verse 22, the final command, out of fear of these people, Pharaoh says, and every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile and kill him. 
See, God's plan was to be fruitful and multiply, but, but I'm telling you, there's no room here for that. We're going to kill them all. We're going to drown them in the Nile. Philip Ryken, commentator on Exodus, puts it this way. In short, Pharaoh is the very picture of man in rebellion against God. He resented God's people, rejected God's promise, and resisted God's plan. That's what's summed up in these very first verses. And then there came a king that did not know God. How tragic it is when leadership no longer knows the people of God. The blessing it is to have the people of God in your country. It's tragic. What's more tragic is when the people of God forget who God is. That's what's more tragic. And generations come from this Pharaoh to the Pharaoh that we'll see in Exodus that sees Moses and battles with Moses. And all concepts of who God is is totally lost. See, in Exodus 5, go to Exodus 5, verse 2. 5, verse 2, this is Moses coming to Pharaoh, letting my people go. Let my people go. God says that they are to leave and serve him. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who's your God? I've never heard of your God. And the book of Exodus is a God who desires to be known, making himself known. God wants to be known. And so this is an introduction of God making himself known to Egypt, making himself known, reminding his people Israel who he is. See, I I was just reading this this week, and I circled 20 times in which God says to Moses, Moses, go do this, that Egypt would know that I am the Lord, that I am the Lord of the earth that I dwell in its midst, that the people of Israel are my people. Moses, go do this, that Israel, my children, would know that I am her savior, her rescuer, her provider. Do this, Moses, that you would know that I know you by name and dwell amongst my people. And the question is, do you know God? Do you know this God? Do you know him? Perhaps you've, you've never known him. Perhaps you grew up in a household. This wasn't oriented towards faith, and this is all new. Who is God that wants to be present in my life? Who is this God of rescue and redemption? I want to know him. Exodus will show him to us. If you don't know God, it would be my joy this fall to introduce you to the God who reveals himself in the epic story of Exodus. And if you've forgotten how big God is, how huge God is, how magnificent he is, it would be my joy this fall to reintroduce you to how wonderful God is as he's revealed himself through the book of Exodus. So that you might know him and grow in your worship of him. To have words that Moses had on his lips be on your lips. This is Exodus 15. Moses says this after seeing God move on their behalf. These would be our words as we grow in knowing who God is. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Verse 13, 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That's the God we're going to see in Exodus. And the question of what happens to Israel? Here it is, the nation of Israel, the people of God, with the promise of God, and God has a plan for them, and they're stuck in Israel. What's God going to do? How will he respond? How will he bring them to the place of promise? That's what we're going to begin to uncover next week. And if you're wondering what happened to Stephen, I'll finish that story next week too. (laughs) But our joy this fall is to know the God of Exodus and to grow in our understanding of who is Jesus the Christ and our worship of him with our whole lives. I can't wait to show you who he is. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God that desires to be known that your desire is not to remain aloof or obscure, but your joy is to make yourself known to people. Lord, I thank you that you're a good God. I think that you are a God of promise and faithfulness, that you have never failed on delivering any of your promises. And so, Lord, we pray that as a community of people, that you would build into the lives of women and men in this place, that we would know you, that we would be led to follow you and worship you for who you are. Give us eyes to see this fall. Give us ears to hear. And then, Lord, transform us. Lord, I pray that many people in this room would experience a freedom from the area in life where they find themselves currently stuck. And on their lips, sing your praises. Lord, we commit ourselves to you this fall. We commit ourselves to the preaching and teaching of your word from beginning to end. We pray that the word of God would be instructive to us and teach us and build us up. Lord, we love you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. Amen.